Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas ideas, debate over which person to interview for the next podcast, and all that good stuff. So go to Facebook, type in sustainable self-development, or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there, and you'll find the sustainable self-development Facebook group, and you can join. Also, not sure where you're listening to this right now, but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbeam, and YouTube. You can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show everybody thank you for tuning in uh, today i'm talking with a guest uh, that i wanted to get on the podcast for a long time especially because this podcast is frequently centered around the topic of overeating managing eating behavior and um, finding sustainable strategies to control our calorie intake for the long term and um okay for, first question to you will be one that i should have asked before the call is it stefan or steven Gienne? stefan Stefan, wonderful. Okay, so Stefan Guiennet, Dr. Stefan Guiennet, I should say, uh, who holds a PhD in neuroscience and has done a lot of interesting work on the basically the science of overeating, what makes people eat more than they should or what their bodies really desire for good functioning. And this interview will hopefully shed a lot of good light on that topic for all of you listening. So um, with that, I'll hand over the microphone for Stefan for a second. So Dr. Stefan Guiennet, um, what is it about your background that uh, our listeners should be aware of in you know a couple of sentences? Sure. So uh, I've always been interested in health and nutrition. Um, essentially, getting a neuroscience degree was a way for me, and, and getting a neuroscience degree and using that to study eating behavior and obesity was a way for me to bring my professional interests in line with my personal interests. And writing my book, The Hungry Brain, was a way for me to take a lot of these really interesting findings in the scientific community and share them with the public in a way that is understandable to a more general audience and kind of get these ideas out there um, that really have not gotten to the public in any really clear, intelligible way. Right. That That is awesome. And... Um... You know, it's really interesting to see a book that actually discusses the science behind this because, I mean, the whole concept, if we just look around on the street, we see a lot of fat people around or overweight people. And um, I guess if we just break down the basic concept that this book uh, discusses in depth is basically we like to eat tasty stuff and we like to eat less of the less tasty stuff. And as a result, we get fat. That's kind of a no-brainer. But discussing the actual science behind this is something that not many people have done. So I guess my, my first question to you is um, what is it in general that our brain seeks in food? What is it that makes food appealing to us and what makes us uh, eat more in a general sense and ultimately more than we should? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because we know that there are some foods that are more appealing than others, right? So 
ice cream is more appealing, pizza is more appealing than plain celery with nothing on it or plain lentils with no salt and fat or steamed plain potatoes with nothing on them. The, the foods I mentioned first are a lot more appealing than the foods that I mentioned last. And why is that? Why do we have different levels of motivation for toward different foods? Why do our brains implicitly assign different levels of motivation and pleasure to different foods? What is it about those foods that causes our brain to feel that pleasure and to feel that level of motivation? And this really comes back to the bigger question of why do we have motivation and pleasure from anything? Why do we even have these systems of motivation and pleasure that drive us toward certain things and not toward others in the first place? And the answer is that these things evolved over millions of years to guide us towards stimuli that increased the reproductive success of our ancestors. So just to unpack that a little bit, reproductive success means how many offspring you have, and that is the currency of natural selection. So the more successful you are in your environment, uh, the more offspring you're going to have, and that is what natural selection attempts to optimize. And so genes that cause that to happen get favored throughout the generations. And so obviously food is a really key um, driver of survival and reproduction, which, which drive natural selection. So food is um, something that our brain has been very deeply wired to learn how to seek effectively. So we're, we're kind of hardwired on a very basic level to seek certain things that increase the reproductive success of our ancestors, things like food and things like sex. So those are both things that were obviously really important to survival and reproductive success. And we have these impulses, these drives wired into our brains that are very strong that relate to those things. And they're very strong because those things are very important for reproductive success of species in the wild. And so um, the interesting thing is, so if you look at humans in a hunter-gatherer setting, they, if you just analyze their behavior, you don't ask them why they choose the foods that they choose. You just analyze their behavior. What you'll find is that their foraging behavior is very focused on obtaining calories. And um, this is true of many different species. Calories are really a very important currency that seems to underlie food-directed behavior in a wild setting. And so we have this, this calorie-oriented behavior deeply wired into our brains, so deeply, in fact, that we don't really have direct access to a lot of it. So a lot of it's non-conscious, things that are happening in really ancient brain circuits that we're not really clearly aware of. Um, we might get inklings every now and then through sensations of hunger or cravings and things like that, but we don't have direct access and control over the brain circuits that are doing those things. And okay, so we want calories, but calorie is kind of an abstract concept. I mean, ca the, the word calorie refers to the chemical energy that's in certain types of molecules that we can harvest inside our bodies. But what does that actually mean in practice? What it means is that uh, we seek certain types of foods that contain those high energy chemical bonds that can help fuel our bodies. And so what are those foods? Uh, they're carbohydrate, including sugar and starch. They are um, fat, of course, and uh, protein. And protein is also important because it's not only an energy source, but it's also an important building block for tissues and cells and everything inside them. Um, 
And then we're also hardwired to go after glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor that is associated with um, soy sauce and monosodium glutamate and a lot of kind of savory snack foods. Uh, bone broth, cooked meat is really probably glutamate is the reason we like it is because it was associated with cooked meat historically. And then uh, salt. Salt is another thing. Sodium chloride, it's an essential nutrient, and it's something that we kind of need a lot of. And uh, it's actually the only micronutrient, in other words, the only vitamin or mineral that we can taste directly. All the other ones we can't really taste, at least not at the concentrations found in food. So our brains are hardwired to seek these things I just described, uh, starch, sugar, fat, protein, glutamate, and salt, and they're hardwired to help us avoid some things that are signs of danger, like uh, things that taste bitter. Until we learn to like them, they'll be unpleasant. Um, and also anything that's caused us to feel sick in the past, the brain learns to associate that with negative feelings. Um, but conversely, these, these substances, the fat and the carbohydrate and the protein, when we eat foods that contain those chemicals, we have specific receptors in our gastrointestinal tract, particularly the upper small intestine, that detect those chemicals and send signals back up to the brain that inform the brain of what you just ate. So let's say you eat a slice of pizza, your brain gets all these signals coming up from the digestive tract that say, hey, this is a really concentrated source of starch and fat and salt and somewhat of protein. And it start, what that does, that signal starts to spike dopamine in your brain. And dopamine is a motivator, it's a learning chemical that causes you to um, feel motivated when you're achieving goals that your brain is hardwired to make you want to achieve, like eating starch, eating fat, having sex. Um, dopamine starts to spike. And what that does is, uh, well, first of all, it spikes in proportion to the concentration of those nutrients. So if you're eating oatmeal that has a lot of water and fiber, you're gonna get a lot less dopamine spiking than if you're eating pizza, which has less water and fiber, really concentrated starch, plus fat, plus salt, all at the same time, that's gonna give you a lot more dopamine spike than some plain, plain oatmeal, or even more so eating plain celery that has almost nothing the brain cares about in it. It's kind of crunchy, but it doesn't really have calories, doesn't have salt. Brain doesn't really care that much about plain vegetables. Um, because they don't contain the thing the brain was hardwired to look for. And so that dopamine starts to spike in your brain when you eat the pizza or the ice cream or whatever it is that is really calorie dense. And what that does is, first of all, it motivates you to continue eating that food. So you have a couple bites and you're like, hey, this is good. I want to have some more. And it causes you to learn in the future, causes you to learn to be motivated by the cues that are associated with that food. And so let me just unpack what I mean by that. Um, so as you're eating pizza, you're getting all kinds of sensory cues. You're seeing the appearance of the pizza, the round pepperonis and the triangular shape of the slices and the way the light glistens on the cheese. You're smelling the aromas, the meatiness and the cheesiness. You're seeing the box, the square box with the greasy stains on it. You're seeing the location you're in. Maybe you're in a pizza shop. You're seeing the brand. 
of the pizza. You're seeing the people you're with and the situation you're with. And your brain remembers all that stuff on a non-conscious level. It stamps all that stuff into your brain as motivational cues. So the next time you smell that smell or you see the symbol of the brand name of the pizza or you're with those same friends or you see the appearance, you see a pizza box, that triggers that memory in your brain that was stamped in by dopamine and it causes that motivation to kick back in. So you get a craving. And that's basically just your brain getting receiving the message that you're in a situation where there is pizza around and the brain on a non-conscious rem- level remembers that pizza is awesome because it corresponds to these hardwired criteria it has for what foods are good and what aren't. And then it kicks in that non-consciously generated motivation to make you eat that pizza. In other words, the craving. So you you experience the craving on a conscious level, but you didn't consciously choose to generate that craving and you don't have conscious control over that craving. You can choose whether or not to act. You can consciously choose whether or not to act on the craving, but you can't consciously choose not to have the craving. That is something that is welling up from non-conscious parts of your brain that are very old and that run on autopilot and that are doing all this stuff. And so when you eat foods that are very concentrated in these things the brain really likes, you will develop a motivational state that can make you feel very motivated to eat those foods. And when you look at the the foods that people report uh, experiencing cravings towards or having addiction-like behaviors towards, generally it's calorie-dense foods that are a mixture of sweet and fat, things like pastries or cookies um, or chocolate. And then the second category that's very common is savory, salty things. So like chips and fries and bacon, things that are mostly salty and fatty, but not, not sweet. And so um, essentially, we tend to develop these very strong motivations for these foods. Like people don't become, people don't lose control around celery sticks. They don't lose control around plain lentils. Those are not things that motivate us sufficiently to cause us to lose control and because they're not spiking dopamine that much. Um, and so we've developed, we learn, our brain learns to motivate us very strongly around these foods, the more of them we eat. And then that creates this cycle where it's very hard for us to resist when those foods are around. And this is the same thing that happens with drugs of abuse. Drugs of abuse, the way they work, they go directly into the brain and they spike your dopamine and your brain learns by virtue of that dopamine spiking, your brain learns to be motivated by the smell of crack cocaine, the people you smoke it with, or let's say cigarettes, that's a better example. The smell of cigarettes, seeing a pack on the counter, walking into the convenience store where you usually buy cigarettes, being around people who smoke, being in the bar where you used to smoke, all those things become motivational triggers just like it's the exact same thing with food. The only difference is that food spikes dopamine by a natural pathway that's triggered by receptors in your gut, whereas nicotine and cigarettes short circuits the motivation pathway by going directly into your brain and spiking dopamine. But it's the exact same thing that happens And it causes very similar behaviors where we do things that cause us to harm ourselves because we have these very strong motivations. So that motivational drive can be so strong that we can keep eating even when we're full because the motivational drive is independent of fullness. 
So you can have a really big meal, and then the dessert menu comes out, and you say, "Hey, that banana split or that brownie sounds really great," because that's your your motivation to get those desirable nutrients is overriding the fact that you already have enough energy, and that that these impulses worked really well for our ancestors. That is what allowed us to survive and reproduce hundreds of thousands of years ago. But today we're already in an environment where we're kind of being pushed to eat too much, and that just adds to the problem. Right. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. That was episode 90 of that. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but this was, this was a wonderful uh, introduction, and, and really you outlined uh, the, the basic and not-so-basic uh, concepts that we need to know about this topic. And, and I really find this to be a fascinating thing, that there are these things such as eating and sex there that are that have this incredibly powerful ev evolutionary v wiring um, component to them, and uh, these things have been kind of uh, constructed throughout evolution, supposedly at least, to make us act in certain ways. And then with modern technology, we start mucking with the system, and then we design these really pa palatable foods. And sure enough, we do have the obesity epidemic, or even with something with pornography, which is not the topic of our, of our interview today, but, you know, these incredibly, you know, <laughs> visually appealing and well put together porn movies, and now there are thousands of people reporting on the, the internet that they developed sexual dysfunctions as a consequence. So I find this to be a fascinating topic for this reason, and, um, you know, I guess a, a big question that, that is uh, hotly debated and, and different people have different takes on this is there such a thing as food addiction? You know, can we actually get addicted to foods or are we simply getting behaviorally addicted to something pleasurable that we do, such as eating tasty foods? What do you think? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question that brings up um, some topics that I think uh, are really informative. So I think it's kind of uh, a semantic issue, honestly. So it's really wordplay, whether we call it addiction or not. Um, but I think everyone agrees that some people show addiction-like behaviors in response to certain types of foods. So the types of foods that I was talking about earlier, generally calorie-dense combinations of fat and sweet or salty-savory types of foods. Uh, not always, by the way. There are exceptions to that, but those are the two most common. Um, yeah, so it's very clear that if you look at um, if you look at what drug addiction is, if you look at what gambling addiction is, for example, those are two things that everybody agrees you can become addicted to. If you look at those uh, and you say, what really are the core elements of addiction that we see here, and do we see similar things in people who seem to be addicted to food, what you see is that, yes, there are very important similarities. And in fact, if you if you apply criteria that were developed to identify drug addiction and gambling addiction and other well-established addictions, if you apply those to food, you see that actually a lot of people would be defined as being addicted to food. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about food in general. People aren't addicted to celery sticks. People are addicted to specific types of food that contain properties that spike our dopamine beyond where it should be spiked and beyond where it was spiked by the food that our ancestors had. And so 
basically we've optimized food to spike dopamine because that's that's what we do. Dopamine is motivating, it's reinforcing, and so it shapes our behavior in the direction of producing dopamine increasing stimuli. That's why we have pornography, that's why we have crack cocaine, that's why we have, you know, all these drugs and all these stimuli in the modern world that the basic stimulus is not necessarily harmful like um coca leaves are used traditionally in South America and it's a mild stimulant. You chew it, it's like drinking a cup of coffee. Uh, poppy pods were used medicinally for thousands of years um, just as a tea to reduce pain and uh, physical and emotional pain. And, and we now, you know, we've, through, the, through chemistry, we've turned that into fentanyl, which is like this incredibly powerful uh, both medical drug and drug of abuse that's even stronger than heroin. So like basically we've just gotten better and better at spiking our own dopamine. There's, there's sex, like, you know, pornography on the internet is not something our ancestors had. Uh, so anyway, we've, we've just come to be able to refine all these stimuli through the progress of technology and affluence. We're just too good at satisfying our own desires, I think is really what it boils down to. Um, and in the health um, domain, our desires are related to calorie-dense refined foods and minimizing physical activities. And we've just been really good at, in, at through the advances of technology, at satisfying those desires that used to be good for us and now are not. Um, but, okay, I just took a tangent, apologies, but I'll get back to the food addiction thing now. Um, addiction, it's controversial. I want to acknowledge that in the um, scientific community, it's controversial to say that uh, people are addicted to food. Some researchers would, would say that there is such a thing as food addiction. Some would say that there isn't. But everyone agrees that some people have behaviors that look a whole lot like addiction um, when they are around certain types of food. And so it's really just a question of whether we attach that label of addiction to it or not. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't really care. I think food addiction, you know, if you ask me, I think it actually does exist. And I think we're reluctant to admit it because it sounds like it, it makes, it makes, it kind of makes, it forces us to accept that a lot of people have a much more serious problem with food than we would like to believe. Um, but I think the other thing to keep in mind is that it, the, the idea of addiction is really an arbitrary distinction. So essentially, you can think about what, what addiction is. It's fundamentally, it's excessive motivation to engage in a uh, behavior that's harming you. So you know it's harming you, but you're just so, you're craving this behavior so much that you're engaging in it anyway, and it's really harming your life a lot. That's the fundamental characteristic of addiction. But, you know, I want to point out that it's really a semantic issue where we decide to draw that line of what's addiction and what's not because you can think about motivation motivation is on a spectrum so you know at the lower end you might have like plain celery sticks yeah okay i'll eat it but i'm really not like craving it i'm not that motivated to eat it and on the upper end you might have foods like ice cream and chocolate and things like that so that's like the most highly motivating um but there's everything in between, right? I mean, there are foods you could put anywhere on that spectrum, and there are motivational states that you could put anywhere on that spectrum. But we say, we decide, we draw a line somewhere, and we say above this 
line is addiction and below this line is not addiction. But that's totally artificial. The fact is that certain foods are more motivating than others. And regardless of whether we exhibit behaviors that we call addiction or not, those foods are still going to make us overeat. So those foods are too motivating. And, and this isn't necessarily true for all people. Not everyone is, at, is equally susceptible to what I'm talking about. But for most people, those types of foods, those modern foods that push our dopamine buttons too hard, even if they don't cause us to actually become addicted, they still over-motivate us and that causes us to eat too much. So I think the idea of addiction, I'm not going to say it's not useful. I think there are people who have benefited from that and kind of as an admission that they really have a problem and sought serious treatment. But I think in a sense, it's a distraction from the fact that this is a problem that is affecting almost all of us, regardless of whether we call it addiction or not. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, psychological addiction. So, sure, it, it, certain addictions might not be as powerful as heroin addiction. So you may not be addicted to the point where your hands would be shaking and, and th things of that nature. But, you know, for example, MDMA, so ecstasy is, is kind of the, the commercial name, is, as far as I know, that is not a phys physically addictive substance, but I mean, there's no question that there are a lot of people who get severely addicted to that kind of a stuff, even though it's not physically addictive. And, um, and I'm not trying to draw a correlation between ecstasy and, and French fries, but a case in point that I think another, uh, and, and it's kind of the way I'm hypothesizing it and, and feel free to correct me, but I think it's kind of a double whammy in the sense that uh, behaviorally, these things are definitely very um, motivating to us to eat tasty stuff, but at the same time, we have this uh, survival element too. So we can't escape food. So food by itself is a very powerful physiological motivator to us to act in certain ways. And then we combine this with a ver very powerful kind of pleasure response that we get from these very tasty foods. And the combination of these is what creates this perfect storm for you know eating to the point of obesity at times. Uh, do you think I'm on the right track here or am I missing something? Well, I think that Pleasure, pleasure is actually a really weird thing. We don't really understand pleasure because, I mean, really the fundamental thing that matters about your for your eating behavior is your motivation because motivation is the uh, drive that causes you to actually engage in that eating behavior. So you can be motivated to do something without experiencing pleasure when you do it. This is something that a lot of drug people who are addicted to drugs report um, and conversely, you can experience pleasure from something that you may not have been that motivated to, uh, engage in, although typically the two travel together. Okay. So, right. Normally you would have a craving and then you satisfy it and you feel pleasure. Um, but we don't really know what pleasure does, honestly. Like it's kind of this, uh, thing that associates with our behaviors and associates with, with our motivations uh, but nobody really knows exactly what its purpose is. So I think what I would say is that I, I really focus on the motivation aspect of it because the motivation is what gets you to engage in the behavior. That's what gets you to put the French fries in your mouth or the fork with the brownie on it in your mouth. Um, and pleasure is something you experience afterwards. But I don't really, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't really understand what the function of pleasure is. And I talked to <clears throat> several top experts in this field as I was writing my book. And 
none of them seem to really have a clear idea of what the heck pleasure is supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, now, another another thing I, I wanted to ask you, uh, which is a related point, is that uh, one thing that I've kind of learned through your work and that I commonly like to reference is that um, hunter-gatherers, I think uh, it was the Hansa, Hadza tribe, I believe, uh, that you, you mentioned that when they find something like honey and uh, basically they just go ham on that and they just drink like a liter of honey on the spot. And it just made me think that that kind of a behavior is basically what we would classify as like subclinical binge eating behavior, you know, in, in modern times. And that kind of just made me think that not only is the... Um, the action of seeking uh, calorie-dense, tasty foods, something that is kind of hardwired, but even the the act of gorging ourselves on these foods. You know, this is something that now we kind of uh, talk about as this flawed, kind of this personality flaw almost. And certainly this is something that all, all of us should try as hard as possible to eliminate from our lives. But at the same time, it seems like even the act of overeating to a severe extent occasionally is something that is wired into to our brains. Uh, is, do you think the same way about this? Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. I hadn't actually seen it from that perspective, um, but what you say makes sense. I hadn't really drawn the parallel to binge eating, but yeah, what you say makes sense. I mean, clearly, hunter gatherers engage in extreme overeating behavior. That yeah, I guess you could call um, binge eating by modern standards. Uh, like you said, drinking a liter of honey at a sitting, eating 30 whole oranges that look very that are very similar in size and sweetness to what you see in a supermarket, eating five pounds of fatty meat at a sitting. I mean, basically, hunter-gatherers are opportunists. So when they have an opportunity to eat large amounts of calorie-dense foods, they will take it. And, you know, they don't have any guilty feelings about it. They don't... They don't uh, you know, try to throw it up afterwards or feel bad about it. This is a behavior that they want and they like, and that has no negative social consequences. And the reason for that is that it's good for them. It is actually beneficial to hunter-gatherers to engage in gluttonous eating behavior like that. And the reason is that they, it's hard to get food in a hunter-gatherer environment. They have to work to get their food. I mean, we think about our lives, it's so easy to get food in our lives. We go to the grocery store and we fill up shopping baskets full of food and then we go home and we eat it. There's tons of food in the fridge. We can just walk over to the fridge or the pantry and get food. Well, if you're a hunter-gatherer, your entire life revolves around getting food, practically. I mean, most of it. You're out for hours each day, generally, seeking food and having to work for that food. So you're having to climb trees. You're having to walk miles every day. You're having to sometimes run after prey, shoot bows and arrows. You're constantly practicing your, you know, bow and arrow use, your spear use, you're setting traps. Um, so it's your entire life revolves really around working for food. And it's hard to get food. And you don't always get quite as much as you would like. You don't always get exactly the right foods that you wanted. And so when, and so you're kind of always trying to, always trying to hit your target in terms of calories. Um, and that's really important because, you know, in today, like, I think it's good to be on the leaner side and, you know, that's better for your health. But in a hunter-gatherer setting, for them, their main concern is being too lean. So they want more calories so that they can 
fully power their immune systems and fully power their muscles and reproduce effectively and support their children and make enough breast milk, et cetera. And um, that's really important to hunter-gatherer survival to have those calories. And so when you're in a situation where all of a sudden you have access to enormous amounts of easily digested high-calorie food for not much work, you're going to take advantage of it. And that is going to help you survive and reproduce in that setting. And so, yeah, I think that it's plausible that our brains have this kind of uh, scarcity mindset deeply wired, probably some people more than others, and that it causes us to, and that's one of the things that causes us to, uh, to eat too much. And maybe, as you said, that binge eating behavior, maybe that's a kind of holdover and actually is a natural behavior that is just uh, maybe triggered too often by the, the modern environment. It's a good thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's and, and it's. I think it's useful to to uh, recognize these things as as kind of uh, potential mechanisms at least, because you know, people, especially in the fitness community where where I move around, uh, they feel almost guilty when oh my god, I'm always thinking about food, I'm thinking about my next meal. And sure, you want to find ways to work around this, but I mean, imagine in a hunter gatherer society or setting, um, if you didn't didn't think about your next meal, I mean, you would be dead very quickly. So something to keep in mind. Um, Still, still on the theme, just for a second, on what makes us seek certain foods. You mentioned um, flavor of variety in a couple of places in your work, and uh, I, I talked about on the podcast before how this sensory-specific satiety is taking place. So, kind of, uh, if you go into a Brazilian steakhouse and you eat steak to the point where you can't move, or even pizza, there comes a point where you don't want to eat that same flavor of pizza, and. Uh, if then someone brings you some completely different flavor, um, that will be all of a sudden very appealing once again. And uh, I always uh, describe this from the sensory-specific satiety standpoint, but um, is, is this the mechanism of basically your dopamine lighting up once again because it provides a different sort of sensory stimulus or what's going on here? Yeah, that's a really good question. So. Um I don't know whether dopamine is involved in sensory-specific satiety. Um, I would suspect it might be because it's involved in a lot of kind of basic motivated behaviors, but I, I, don't, I don't actually know. Um, I think that sen the way I framed it in the book is that sensory-specific satiety relates to a very basic pro uh, property of the nervous system and of the brain that goes back... Mil hundreds of millions of years, even jellyfish exhibit this property and it's called habituation. So basically the way this works is if let's, let's say you have a jellyfish and uh, it's in a tank of water and you have a little, you have a little stick and you're poking the jellyfish. The first time you poke the jellyfish in a particular location, it will react strongly and it will withdraw. The second time you poke it, it will react a little less strongly. And then the more you do that, the less it will react. So that's called habituation. Basically, it's nervous system. Jellyfish have a very simple nervous system. Uh, its nervous system will become accustomed to that stimulus, and it will stop reacting to it. And so the way that applies to food is we um, our kind of motivational response to a food, to a particular flavor profile, can become saturated pretty quick. So... The first bite we take of, uh, I don't know, the steak at a buffet is is really delicious, 
uh, you know, the next few bites are good. And then after a while, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. It doesn't really taste that good. I'm not, I'm not feeling motivated. But then, oh, hey, look, there are these, uh, there are these um, biscuits, and that's a totally different flavor profile. So, okay, well, now the first bite is good again, and now I'm feeling like I could eat a fair bit of this biscuit, and then I make my way to the end of the biscuit, and, ah, you know, I'm kind of done with this biscuit. But wait a minute, look at this brownie. So, you know, you can, in, at a buffet, there's so many different flavor profiles that you can keep doing that and you can become habituated to specific flavor profiles, but not be habituated to others. And it, that causes your total calorie intake to really go up quite a bit higher than it would if you only had a few different types of food on your plate and that's all you could eat, or even just one or two types of food on your plate. Um, so if you go into a buffet and you say, okay, I'm going to choose two or three nutritionally complete foods, and that's all I'm going to eat, chances are that you will feel full at the end of that meal and satisfied at the end of that meal, but you will not eat nearly as many calories as if you just ate like most people eat at a buffet. You have as much of whatever you want uh, as many times as you want. And uh, this has been experimentally demonstrated a number of times. And so, yeah, I think this may relate to that very basic property of the nervous system called habituation. At least that's what researchers uh, say. I don't know if dopamine is involved or not. Right. Um, yeah, very interesting, nevertheless. And um, uh, kind of a, a random point on this. It, it just I, I've been thinking about this. It's a completely random question, but I just can't really find a good answer. What, what do you think makes cheese so damn yummy? Like, uh, it, it's really weird. Um, because anytime I'm eating cheese, I'm thinking about it like, why is this that I could eat like half a kilo, or like 1,500 calories of this stuff in whatever, five minutes? Whereas if I look at something like a fatty piece of steak, it's, it's still tasty, but it's nowhere near uh, that level of, um, of kind of sensory stimulus for me, even though macronutritionally and even composition-wise, I mean, it's saturated fat, it's some protein, it's pretty similar. What do you think makes cheese so, so yummy? Uh, and, and, and the reason I, I want to ask you is because it's pretty hard to Google around this topic be, because very quickly these, you know, cheese activates the same receptors as heroin does, like that, <laughs> that sort of things pop up very quickly. So what, what do you think about this? Yeah, so I'll just start by uh, saying this in case people in the audience don't know that basically anything that we like activates the same parts of the brain as heroin. That's what those brain regions evolved for. So it doesn't mean anything that something activates those brain regions. That just means your brain likes it. Um, so, okay, I've got one word for you that, ex that explains this, or it could explain it, and that word is water. So cheese is more calorie dense than steak because it contains a lot less water. Basically, the cheese making process is a process of extracting most of the water out of the dairy and concentrating the fat and most of the protein and adding salt to it. So suddenly you have this thing that's extremely calorie dense and very dense in salt too, more dense than a typical steak would be. So in other words, calories per gram, salt per gram is higher in cheese than it is in steak. And by the way, it's, it's an individual thing. So I don't think 100% of people would necessarily feel the same way as you. We're all wired a little bit differently and our brains value things a little bit differently. But I do think that most people would probably feel the same way as you where cheese eating cheese is like is more like smoking crack than eating a steak is um, and I think it really boils down to that water so on a dry weight basis 
I think you're right that those two things are fairly similar. But if you include the fact that steak is 75% water and cheese, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but it's a lot less water. Um, I think that really explains why the dopamine release and why the motivational state is different between those two things. Yeah, that, that actually totally explains it then. And it makes a lot of sense when framed it that way. Um, now, now, another thing I, I definitely wanted to ask you about is uh, inter, inter-individual differences. And um, we know that, you know, for exa- that some people have a higher uh, degree of um, need, so non-exercise thermogenesis. They just naturally move more and thereby they are less likely to get obese. But I'm more more interested and more intrigued by by the differences uh, behaviorally, you know, and it's especially, you know, people who are just coming up in the fitness uh, game, for example, and they start looking around YouTubers, it's very apparent that one half of the YouTuber crowd, I would say the bigger one, is always putting out recipes on how to make foods more satiating with less calories and these high protein, low calorie fluffs and all those kinds of things. And the other half is always uh, putting out these weight gainer and how to make these really high calorie shakes and everything because those people have always the struggle of not being able to eat enough. And, you know, everybody knows these people in the office, the, you know, I forgot to eat type of people, you know, the, oh my God, I just can't eat enough. I'm always starving away. So what do you think accounts for these behavioral differences? Is it the difference in appetite or what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I think, again, this is a question that raises some really interesting scientific points. So just recently, there was a paper published that was the largest study ever published on the genetics of body fatness in humans. And this was uh, a study type called genome-wide association study. These are a really big deal right now. And basically what they try to do is they scan throughout the entire genome, all of your genes and everything in between, And they try to see if there's any places in the human genome where differences tend to associate with differences in body mass index, suggesting, and body fatness basically, suggesting that those areas are influencing body fatness. And one of the things that's really interesting that I certainly wouldn't have predicted in advance, but is turning out to be the case, is that there are tons of different kinds of genes that affect body fatness. I mean, right now we have, I think, some 300 genes, roughly off the top of my head. Uh, And we've only explained a fraction of the genetic contribution to body fatness differences. And so there are gonna be thousands, if not more, genes or locations in the genome where variability explains differences in body fatness between people. And each one of those only has a really small impact. So they're tiny effects, but there's tons and tons of them. And we know, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I wrote a book that centers on the brain and body fatness and eating behavior is because we know that those genes that are affecting body fatness are primarily affecting brain function. So the brain is really where it's at in terms of eating behavior and body fatness. There's multiple lines of evidence suggesting that, which is why I feel very privileged to have written the first book that really is a general audience book focusing on those mechanisms, those brain mechanisms. Um, but the, uh, okay. So basically to now to get, to drill down, to answer your question, uh, more effectively now that we have that background, it could be anything. So there, some of the genes 
are probably affecting, we, we know that some of the genes are affecting people's appetites. So some people require more food to feel full than others, and that's related to genetics. Some people are more susceptible to food reward than others. In other words, they have a greater tendency to overeat when they're around really delicious foods. Some people, you know, they can be around pizza, they can be around ice cream, and they can just have a little bit and they're fine. That's not me. That's not most people, but uh-huh. some people are like that. Um, and then there are differences in metabolism. So there are some people who can overeat tremendously and their body just burns off the excess calories. Whereas other people, every excess calorie they eat goes straight into their fat tissue. So there, and, and that's just, I just gave you a few examples, but probably anything you could possibly think of that would affect your likelihood of, tending to be lean or tending to be fat or tending to overeat or tending to undereat, probably anything you can think of, whether it's psychology or metabolism or your hunger responses or your pleasure responses, probably in anything you can think of, there are probably a multitude of genes affecting how um, different people respond in those different categories and basically how all that stuff adds up ends up determining who are the people who are, uh, you know, always trying to put on muscle or always trying to put on weight. And then who are the people who are struggling with excess fat mass or people who naturally have a lot of muscle mass. They're just the sum of all those really complex interactions is, is what we end up seeing. So I don't, I don't know if that's a very specific answer to your question, but I don't think there is a more specific answer at this point in, in science. Yeah, no, uh, th- thank you for that. And, uh, and, um, I guess, I guess a related point, which, which I found very interesting, uh, when kind of, I, I dug through your work and I, I listened to an interview you've done where you talked about, um, or maybe it has also been mentioned in your book that, um, smoking rates as they have declined over the years and, and kind of more and more negative, uh, advertising around smoking is, is present. And as we, or as the Western society have smoked less, uh, over time, obesity rates, uh, have increased. And we know, or a lot of people know that nicotine is an appetite suppressing, uh, substance. And, um, if that's true, and I'm willing to, to bet on the fact that it is indeed true that those things are correlated for a reason, does this make you think that um, perhaps uh, the medical industry and developing uh, drugs and maybe you know supplements or, or things of that nature in the future, which will help kind of modify people's appetites and uh, propensity to overeat will be a big game changer in the future? Yeah, I I think it's likely. Um, I think it's pretty inevitable that eventually we will have effective treatments for obesity uh, with the way biomedical science is progressing. I mean, the truth is we have the ability right now to stop obesity, but we just, the treatments that we've developed are not acceptable for safety and ethical reasons. So for example, we know a lot of the populations of neurons in the brain that control hunger. In, in animal models, we can manipulate food intake and hunger like the animal is a marionette. We can control it with the flip of a switch. We have that level of understanding now of how these hunger circuits work, hunger circuits and fullness circuits. We know where those neurons are in the human brain, and we have the ability to control them. The problem is you have to insert, uh, you have to 
use uh, molecular biology and genetic techniques. You have to inject things. You have to insert uh, fiber optic cables into the brain. Very invasive, um, not necessarily safe. And so uh, the problem is not that we don't know how to reverse obesity. The problem is that we don't know how to do it without causing other problems. Because anytime you're tinkering with those systems, you know, the brain... The brain is a very delicate and complex organ, and anytime you're tinkering with something in it, you're probably going to be tinkering with something else that you don't want to be tinkering with. And, um, okay, so that's one point I want to make. Another point is we actually have several obesity drugs on the market right now that are somewhat effective for weight loss. And the latest one is a drug from Novo Nordisk called liraglutide. This is an injectable drug that is a synthetic version of the hormone GLP-1. That's a satiety hormone produced by the intestine when you eat food. And when you give really high levels of it, it causes people to lose weight. It was originally a diabetes drug, but they found it was working for weight loss. Uh, so that's now an approved treatment for obesity. We also have a few other few other drugs on the market. Some of them are more effective than others. Um, but none of them are really the magic bullet. So they're all, they're all effective to some degree, but there's nothing you can take that will reverse obesity and then you can stop taking the drug and you will still be lean. These are drugs that only suppress your body fatness while you're on them. And if you go off of them, you will experience a rebound back to your original weight. So, um, but that said, I mean, like I said, the brain is a really difficult organ to target, and especially with drugs. Drugs are a very blunt tool. So you're bathing the entire billions of neurons in the brain, you're, or I don't know, millions. I, I don't remember. I'm embarrassing myself here. I don't remember how many neurons there are in the brain. But you're, you're bathing these enormous amount of neurons and enormous amount of connections between those neurons, all using different combinations of chemical substances you're bathing that entire thing in this drug. And so to have to do that and to have a level of specificity that you're looking for in the midst of that in the midst of that incredible complexity is just a really tall order. So I think we'll get there eventually, but I think it's going to take it's going to take some progress and you know, understanding how a system works is not the same as being able to manipulate that system effectively in real life. Those are two different things and I think we have a lot of understanding, but we haven't quite made that leap to being able to manipulate effectively in real life. Um, but it's coming. It's only a matter of time. Right. Um, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And while those dogs, drugs are, are not available, um, I know that you, you made some recommendations in your, your book, and I, I'm, I'm fully aware that we are slowly, I mean, not slowly, we're actually coming up on time, but maybe, maybe if you have a couple of minutes to just outline um, kind of the recommendations that you would give to people as to how to modify their food environment and uh, some simple but effective strategies to, you know, outsmarting the genes that make us fat. Yeah, so the... Um the kind of core principle that I advocate for in my book is that we are being, our eating behavior is being led astray by these ancient non-conscious brain circuits, some of which I described in, uh, previously in this interview. And uh, the idea that I advance is that if we want to regain a comfortable relationship with food and a sustainable uh, 
body weight that we want, we have to address the activity of those non-conscious circuits instead of trying to impose uh, behaviors on them using sheer willpower. Because we know that if you just tell people to eat less, to exert portion control, to count calories and eat fewer calories, most people are not able to do that effectively. It works for some people, but most people are not able to do that effectively. And the reason is that's not how we normally interact with food. Normally, we eat, we eat when we're hungry or when it's mealtime, and we stop eating when we're satisfied or when we're full. It's a very intuitive process. It's not a conscious, rational, willpower-based process. And that's, that's how, we, how human beings normally interact with food. That's how all animals interact with food. Um, and what we're trying, what we're essentially asking people to do is impose a level of conscious control on that. And we can impose conscious control. I mean, if you really don't want to eat, you don't, you can choose not to eat. Uh, you can ignore the cravings. You can ignore the hunger. We do have the ability to do that. But when you ask someone to do that every day, multiple times a day on an ongoing basis, it's like asking someone not to drink when they're thirsty. Yeah, you can do it for a little while, but it's going to wear you down. Those non-conscious motivational circuits are not designed to be ignored on a continual basis. Those are fail-safe mechanisms that are designed to keep you from doing stupid stuff like not eating enough in an ancestral environment of our distant ancestors. And so that's kind of the basic concept. So I, I'm not against counting calories. I say if it works for you, that's fine. But I just don't think it's the strategy that is um, going to work for most people. And I think there's a lot of scientific evidence backing that statement up. Um, so there are a couple of things you can do to address the activity of these non-conscious circuits in a way that will support your goals and help you have a good relationship with food without having to use willpower all the time. One of the ones that you mentioned that I think is really crit critical is controlling your food environment. So as I explained earlier, our motivational states, our uh, cravings, for, for foods are activated by sensory cues that signal the availability of those foods to the brain. And so if you see a food, if you smell it, that's gonna trigger your craving. And so not exposing, yourselves to the, not exposing yourself to those stimuli is a really key thing you can do to uh, make it easier for, for yourself and shift your eating behavior in, in a better direction. I mean, this is what people do when they're trying to quit smoking uh, they don't leave packs of cigarettes hanging around the house. They don't go to places where people are smoking. They don't go into the convenience store where they used to buy cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera. Those things trigger uncontrollable cravings that cause them to relapse and do things that they don't want to do. And so the same way with your food environment, what you need to do or what, what I believe uh, would be helpful for you to do if you're trying to manage your eating behavior and body weight is to have a really clean food environment where there's little to no visual or smell cues in your house or in your workplace that are reminding your brain of food. So there's little food in your house and no food anywhere except in the kitchen or pantry. And any food that is visible out on the counter, anything that you can see without opening a door, is something healthy and that's not excessively tempting. So you don't want to have a bag of chips on the counter, but it might be okay to have apples on the counter or oranges on the counter. I think oranges are really good because it takes a little bit of work to get into them. And that's another key point is not only do you want the foods that are visible and readily accessible to be not too tempting, but you want to have little effort barriers 
in place that force you to work just a little bit to eat that food. So you have to think about it and you have to have a certain level of motivation before you're going to engage in that behavior. So an orange, for example, it's not hard to get into an orange, right? If you're hungry, you can peel an orange. It's no problem. But that is an effort barrier that you have to overcome. And that means you're not going to do it unless you're motivated to do it, which means you're probably feeling hungry. So if you're not hungry, you're still going to be able to reach into an open bag of chips on your counter and eat chips even if you're not hungry. But if I told you you had to climb a tree to get the chips, you're probably not going to eat the chips. So going, you're, you're not going to eat it unless you're hungry. So creating those little barriers, that little effort barriers. So putting, let's say, peanuts in shells, unsalted peanuts. This is one thing that I like to have around. Unsalted peanuts in shells. So they don't taste as good as salted peanuts. And I have to work a little bit. I have to break the shells. You could even put those in a screw top jar. So you have to unscrew the lid, then eat, then shell the peanuts. Um, that is something where you won't do that unless you're hungry. And it's okay if you're hungry to have a little snack. But if you're not hungry, you shouldn't be eating. And then you, and then that should be the only food that's easy to get and easy to eat in your house is things that you're okay with yourself snacking on and there is an effort barrier in place. So personally, I don't like to have snack foods, like unhealthy snack foods anywhere in my house, even in the pantry. I don't keep ice cream in the freezer. Because And this depends on who you are. Some people can handle that. Some people can't. You can be more or less strict depending on your own personal needs. But uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people, my brain knows when there's ice cream in the freezer. My brain knows, and it will generate a craving to eat that ice cream at the end of a meal if it's in there. If there's no ice cream in the freezer, not only can I not eat it at the end of a meal, but I don't even experience a craving for it. And that's true for most people. Again, your brain, your cravings get triggered by these cues by the sensory cues or by the knowledge that a food is available. If it's not available, generally the cravings will be absent or at the very least reduced. And so the same goes for your work environment. You don't want to have, you know, a lot of, and this is tough. A lot of workplaces, people are bringing in brownies, they're bringing in donuts, they're bringing in candy all the time, and that's all around you and you're experiencing the sight and the smell of it. Uh, And that's really tough. But anything you can do to improve that situation to where your only options are healthy foods that you have to work a little bit to eat, um, that is, that's what you want to have. So that's the food environment piece. And then another thing I would say, another one of these non-conscious circuits that we didn't really talk about much is the satiety circuits in your, in your brainstem. So these are the circuits that cause you to feel full the more you eat at a meal. The more you eat, the more you experience that sensation of fullness that's generated by cells in your brainstem that are receiving signals from your from your gastrointestinal tract that tell your brain what and how much you've eaten. And so once that reaches a certain level of signal, your brainstem says, okay, we've had enough. Now I'm going to cut off. I'm going to tell the rest of your brain to stop feeling motivated to eat, stop feeling pleasure as you put additional mouthfuls of food into your mouth. And that's the point at which you end your meal, typically. Um, And this is really important because, as I said, this is the intuitive way that people interact with food. They stop eating when they feel full. So the point at which you reach that fullness signal is a major determinant of calorie intake at a meal and total calorie intake over 24 hours. And it turns out that this fullness signal, the strength of it is not really that well correlated with the number of calories that you've eaten. So it is correlated, 
to some degree, but you can basically trick your satiety circuits into feeling more full with fewer calories. And I won't go into great detail about this um, just to try to keep it brief, but basically uh, if you want your, your food to be more filling per calorie, and if you want to naturally be able to eat few, fewer calories without feeling hungrier, what you want to do is eat foods that have a lower calorie density, so fewer calories per gram or per volume, and that usually means more water and more fiber, so like oatmeal versus crackers, for example, or even oatmeal versus bread. And um, you want it to be higher in protein, higher proportion of protein. You want it to be higher in fiber, uh, and you want it to be lower in palatability. So what I mean by that is you don't want it to be overwhelmingly delicious. So if food is really, really delicious, and people hate hearing this, but this is, this is the secret that nobody wants to hear but is true, is that food that's really delicious, make, it tends to make us eat too much of it. So if you have food that's more plain, will tend to eat less of it. I mean, this is really common sense, but people don't want to hear this. It's uh, also been supported by a lot of research. Um, people will think of all kinds of ways of trying to think of ways why this is wrong, but it is just a simple fundamental truth. We eat too much if the food tastes too good. Um, so, so putting that together, I mean, really the types of foods that create more fullness per calorie are unrefined foods of the kinds that our ancestors would have eaten, like uh, whole tubers, like potatoes and sweet potatoes, whole grains, beans, meats, fruits, uh, vegetables, um, fish, eggs. Those are the types of foods that are going to make you feel more full with fewer calories, whereas conversely, a lot of the modern foods that we intuitively recognize as fattening, like pastries and candy and chips... Uh, but also things like added fats and added sugars, those are things that create very little satiety per calorie. So you eat those foods and you just feel your normal level of fullness. You don't feel like you overate, but actually you did overeat. You ate too many calories because it took more calories to get to that fullness point. So th that's two things, the food environment and the satiety thing. I think those two together, and there are others that I discuss in my book, but I think those two together are a really good start for people. Yeah, I, I, I think I thought that was brilliant, and uh, and I guess that not only does that parallel to what a lot of what of what I've been talking about on the podcast, but also the experience of basically anybody who has gotten lean, especially you know successful bodybuilders are kind of a, the pinnacle of this. You know, average satiety index of the diet goes up as they progress in the diet, and average palatability goes down. And um, I'm fully aware that I've been very abusive of your time already, but just something that uh, got sparked in my head as you were saying this is that you know. I think ultimately it comes down to engineering a food environment and uh, food selection uh, for yourself that allows you to have uh, not only satiating foods, but also foods that you like and kind of hit that sweet spot where you enjoy your diet, it is sustainable, but it's not triggering you to overeat. And I constructed that for myself with you know, foods that I like. I'm fully confident in saying that I could keep this up for the rest of my life. Uh, but one kind of concern that came up when I mentioned to my listeners that I will be talking to you is, is there a way to kind of reset your palate to appreciate these um, more satiating, not super calorie dense foods uh, once you kind of make the, the switch? Or is this something that automatically happens over time as you uh, kind of get used to eating these foods? Yeah, I think people can become accustomed to eating uh, less 
palatable foods over time and foods with less added sugars and less added fats over time. Uh, I think that your ability to adapt to that will probably differ between people. Some people will have a harder time than others. Some people, I mean, I've, it's actually been really extraordinary to me to see how devastating it is to some people to eat simple, bland foods. I mean, some people are just like psychologically incapable of giving up the entertainment value of food, the pleasure value of food that they are accustomed to every day. So cutting back on sugar and fat is just like devastating to them. Um, but, you know, I would say that people feel the same way about cigarettes. You know, it's devastating to people to stop smoking cigarettes, but ultimately that's a good idea. Um, and I don't think, and, and okay, so I don't think we all need to eat bland food. I want to be clear about that. I don't think we all need to eat very, uh, very simple, bland, or unappetizing food. But I think that the deliciousness of food is a variable in the equation that determines your food intake and body fatness. And so that is a tool that you have at your disposal that you can manipulate to get the results that you want. And so I think for most people, what uh, they're going to have to find their own balance. But I think for most people, that balance is going to involve eating less of or no of the most uh, the most uh, tempting calorie-dense foods, things like pizza and brownies and pastries and stuff like that. I'm not saying that you can't eat that stuff sometimes and, and be fine and be healthy in the context of an overall healthy diet and lifestyle. I mean, I still eat, I'll eat pizza every now and then. I'll eat a pastry every now and then. I'll eat ice cream every now and then. But it, it really depends on who you are. Some people have a really hard time uh, controlling their behavior. And if they eat it once, it will send them on a downward spiral. I'm not like that. Not a lot of people aren't like that, but some people are. Um, so I think it, it really depends on who you are, but I think most people benefit from eating a diet that is simpler and lower in calorie density and unrefined. Like if you're, and, and I hate to be the tough guy here, but this is true. If you're not willing to stop eating calorie dense refined foods, then you are not willing to improve your body fatness and health. And that is just the bottom line. So there's not like a magic solution that I have that will allow people to keep eating their favorite delicious junk foods and lose weight. That is not something that exists. And so at some point you have to make decisions to eat a healthier diet and that is going to involve leaving behind some appealing foods. But I think that it's all about striking a balance. So, you know, maybe you can eat a diet that is very satisfying and that contains a lot of whole plant foods and uh, unrefined, unprocessed meats and eggs and fruit and sweet potatoes and potatoes and whole grains and beans and doesn't contain very much white flour or not too much added fats and not much added sugars, um, not much baked goods and things like that, not much ice cream. And I think that's a diet that can be very satisfying. I mean, you can use herbs and spices, you can use salt. I think that diet can be very satisfying. Uh, but yes, you are cutting out, you are going to be cutting out some of these foods that are, that really, really get the dopamine going, like pizza and Snickers bars and ice cream. You are going to cut those out and, or at least you're going to reduce them quite a bit. And if you aren't willing to do that, then you aren't willing to improve your, your weight and health. Uh, but the brain does adapt over time. So um, 
if you look at, you know, going back to the analogy of smoking, I think it's a good analogy whether or not we think eating behavior is addiction. Um, people get used to not smoking. So at first, it's really hard to avoid cigarettes. I'm sure everybody listening knows someone who's quit smoking, or maybe they have. Initially, it's really hard to avoid smoking cigarettes. I mean, you have these really strong cravings, so strong that most people don't succeed on their first try, even though they really want to quit. And most people don't succeed on their several several of their first tries. So they, they don't succeed several times because these cravings are so strong. But eventually people quit and the cravings get smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And then a year after they quit, two years after they quit, it's like they could care less about cigarettes. Maybe they don't even like the smell anymore. It smells gross. And they can be around people who are smoking again. They can even have a pack of cigarettes laying on the counter and they just don't want to use it. So I think the brain adapts over time and, but I think, so, so I think you can get used to a simpler, more unrefined diet, but I think ultimately, and, and you have to give yourself time for that process to occur. You have to let, you have to do it for a few months and let your brain start to let go of those dopamine spiking foods that it was accustomed to. But you have to also remain vigilant because you can relapse easily and it depends on the person, how much of a risk this is, but your brain is always ready to, to jump back onto the pizza and ice cream bandwagon. It's always, it's always ready to do that. And so if you put it in a situation where you're giving it those dopamine stimuli again too much, too often, then you can make life really difficult for yourself. Yeah, I think this was very, very well said. And it's not a value judgment necessarily on anybody. You're just outlining the science behind this and what the effective strategies are. And ultimately, you are just offering uh, choices to people that they can make. And it's ultimately down to us which of these choices we want to make. And, you know, one very important message of what, what you're saying, well, uh, besides just outlining the satiety mechanisms behind all of this, it's also that succeeding is hard enough, but succeeding in a consistently negative environment is exceptionally hard. And on top of that, it's important for all of us to accept that there will be an element of this where we have to use our willpower. And like you said, it's something that a lot of us don't like to hear, that we will need to give certain things up. And at some point, we, we, we will have to show some restraint. Uh, but as you outlined, and a lot of what I like to talk about on the podcast is that there are better and worse ways to use our, our willpower and to show this restraint that we ultimately have to show. Um, so Stefan, this was an incredible conversation and uh, I really enjoy this. Uh, I know that my listeners will as well. Uh, my last question to you is what are the resources that you would like people to check out and what new things you're working on that you would like to direct people to? Yeah. So, um, I think the best place for people to learn more about my work is through my book, The Hungry Brain. Um, that's really where I've laid out all my ideas in um, as clear and complete a format as, as I can. Uh, not all of my ideas, but at least the ones that revolve around this topic. And I also write on my website, stephanguiennet.com. You can also get to that via wholehealthsource.org in case you don't feel like spelling my name. Um, and I'm also pretty active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at WHSource, and uh, it's pretty science-heavy. I like to tweet and discuss about the latest studies, but I also have some stuff that's of interest to a more general audience. Um, 
So yeah, that's how you can follow my work if you want to. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.